before we begin our study time, um, last week I talked about Advent for a little bit and kind of announced it's the last Sunday was the first week of Advent. And so each week has a theme that it kind of follows after. And last week we talked about waiting. And so um, just to kind of put on your minds to be thinking about and praying over as we go into the Christmas season, this week, Advent week two, is focused on mystery. And so the first week that talks, you kind of focus on the waiting period and thinking about like not only anticipation of Christmas and the coming of the child, but the, the afterwards, which is expecting the return of our Savior. And so there's kind of a twofold way of looking at this. And now as, as we think about mystery this week, and I encourage you guys to do some good Advent reading. If you're looking for material, I encourage you to um, just to pick, pick my brain about it or, or look up some good books to read. We read nightly together, our family, and, and read through um, just a focus on Christ in this season and keeping him at the center of it, which is hard to do in a consumeristic society. Um, and so we t- take extra effort as a family to focus on Jesus in this season and to really be thinking and, and settling in him and resting in him. And so I want you to consider the following quote. This is from God is in the Manger, which was written. Um, it's a collection of um, sermons and, and letters from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, this was in our reading for the, the week of mystery, which is this coming week of Advent. That this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, was himself the Lord of glory. That was the mystery of God. It was a mystery because God became poor, low, lowly, and weak out of love for humankind, because God became a human being like us so that we would become divine, and because he came to us so that we would come to him. God is the one who becomes low for our sakes. God and Jesus of Nazareth, that is the secret hidden wisdom that no eye has seen, nor ear, nor the human heart conceived. That is the depth of the deity when we worship as mystery and comprehend as mystery. My prayer for us, church, this Christmas is that we would experience that continuous revelation of Christ, that continue growing maturity and understanding of who he is, um, and that as we meditate on that in our hearts, we would reflect on the child in the manger, and we would anticipate the coming kingdom. As we remember Jesus on Christmas morning together, I encourage you guys to read the biblical story, read the, the birth about the birth of Christ together, but I also want to encourage you guys to pray as a family that the Lord will make you aware of his coming aware that he is coming soon because Advent means arrival. And so we recognize that our Savior came once that he returns again. And so we're looking forward to that with great anticipation as the days get colder. I'm not talking about winter. So let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll get into the word in our Bible study for this morning. God, thank you for a season of Christmas that we get to celebrate. I thank you, Lord, that it's so steeped in, in wonderful uh, tradition for the church to be able to take some time and focus on you. And Lord, it's not that these things don't matter the rest of the year. It's that we just like to take this holiday season and turn our eyes to you in a very intentional way. God, to look at the arrival of our Savior as a baby in a manger. And then, Lord, to both see that and anticipate you returning again. Lord, to see you coming as the King of Kings, bringing your kingdom and your rule here. Lord, it's what we long for. And so I pray that you would give us this, not only appreciation for this season that we get to celebrate. Lord, we thank you for, for putting up Christmas trees and decorations and, and the music. Lord, we, we so enjoy this time of year. But God, the only thing that gives it value is Jesus if you were at the center of it. And so I pray that for us as a church, you would stay in the center of our focus this Christmas season as we anticipate both the day of Christmas and of your coming again, that second arrival, that second advent. We thank you, Lord, for this time and pray that we would be more aware of it this year than we ever have been before. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, Daniel chapter 9. 
Daniel chapter 9, the much-anticipated Daniel 9. <laughs> so it's interesting, out of all the uh, the chapters in Daniel, there's a handful that would probably pop to mind for me as, as some of the most notorious, if you will, or most uh, famous passages. And Daniel 9 is, is certainly on the top of that list or around the top of the list because of what it contains. And what's interesting about Daniel chapter 9 is that oftentimes, in my experience anyways, as I've heard it taught uh, quite a few times, um, the focus has been on the latter half of the chapter, talking about the 70 weeks. Um, and not much attention, in my experience, has been given to the 70 years that's focused on in the first half of the chapter. And I'll explain that in a moment. The prayer of Daniel in Daniel 9 is not to be skipped over or taken lightly. And it's not for the faint of heart either. Um, this prayer is powerful. And I believe it is the catalyst or the beginning to the vision. The reason that the vision was understood by Daniel and it was absorbed by him and able to be um, processed by him, I believe, is because of his prayer to begin with. And the heart and the attitude of Daniel is what we're going to focus on the next couple of weeks as we look at this prayer. And then we'll get into the prophecy side of it. Um, but I really want us to consider this. And, and in uh, that train of thought, as I was praying over this text and as I was studying it came to my mind, and, and I thought of the church of Laodicea. God forbid we ever become the church of Laodicea. And for those of you who have read Revelation 3, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the church that had nothing good said about it. This is the final of the seven churches that Jesus is having John write a letter to, and this is the church that Jesus says nothing positive about. And the reason why I thought about them is as Jesus calls this church to account and starts talking about the things that they've done and the problems that exist there, they're not left without hope. It seems like a pretty hopeless situation for this church. You look at that church and go, that church needs to close, bro. Maybe, maybe. But what Jesus says in that text is found in Revelation three nineteen through 20. And he says this to that church after calling them out. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking you because conviction, correction, discipline are all proof of God's love for us. Can I repeat that just for us to think about? Conviction, correction, and discipline are proof of God's love for us. When he does that, he is proving his love. And that's why he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous. Put effort into, give yourself to repentance. Did you notice the visual that Jesus gave in those short two verses? Especially, I'll highlight for you verse 20. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. Who's he speaking to in general? What's this letter written to? It's a church, church of Laodicea. Why is Jesus on the outside? Why is he at the door knocking? Because their disobedience has pushed Jesus out of the doors of the church. Christ is not in the center. He's not even in the building. He's not even in the back pew. No reference to the back pew people. He's, or back chair people. It, it's, he's not even in the back row. He's not even, as we used to call it, sinner's row. He's not even in that row. He's, it's, it's just a, <laughs> see, the problem with saying that in this church is most everyone finds the back seat. It's like a theater here. Everyone goes to the very back row. 
But but what's oh, <laughs> Bob's like Altoids, Mike. Altoids. That's the answer. You guys think about this. Why is Jesus outside of this church? And more importantly, what does Jesus say they need to do about it? There's lots of reasons. There's lots of ways that we've seen Jesus be pushed out of the churches of our country. There's lots of people who are doing this. And if you've been reading headlines recently, it's, it's really tragic how many pastors have been the reason that's happening. But what's startling to me is that Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And then he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, opens the door, repentance is the door. Repentance is the door. I don't know if you noticed it on the slide that opened, but it says this the sermon is entitled Opening the Door. Because Jesus stands at the door and knocks, but we have to open this door of repentance. We have to come to him and say, we want you in here. We want you at the table. We want you in the closet. We want you in the bathroom and in the laundry room, even though it's a mess. We want Jesus to fill this house. We want his presence to be the focus and the center and his will to be done here in this church as it is in heaven. Because if we aren't getting this right, as we'll see later, if we're not getting this act of repentance, if we're not coming to him and opening the door, how in the world can we ask other people to do that? How in the world can we ask people in the world to open the door to Jesus if we ourselves have him shut out? We find ourselves tripping down the roads and the pathways of moralism and philanthropy. And that's not what we're here to do. Loving Jesus makes us moral. And loving Jesus makes us care for other people. It flows out of us then. But if that's all the church is identified by and Jesus is on the outside, that church is in big, big trouble. Repentance is the door. We have to hear the voice of Jesus and open through repentance to establish fellowship with him. And as the NLT translates it, it says, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. I love that. I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. It's exactly what the text is indicating. As we begin Daniel chapter 9 this morning, the reason why I open with Revelation 3, or yeah, Revelation 3, is that what we're going to see Daniel do in this chapter is very uniquely open the door of repentance but not just for himself. Daniel is going to stand on behalf of his people, Israel, and open the door of repentance. Daniel is going to stand amidst his people and own the sin of the people in his own life. It's a powerful passage. We're going to see this in two parts over the next couple of weeks. I hope it impacts us. But I think that we see here a model for especially leaders, for shepherds, for people who lead other people to see the necessary repentance that needs to take place in our lives on a regular basis in order to lead people in the right direction. And in fact, as for my own self, I recognize that I as a pastor need to lead you guys through the process of realization, confession, and repentance. That needs to be the life that I live first. And I have to make that clear to the church always. Let's pick up in verse 1. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read the first three verses to start. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, 
that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. If we believe, generally speaking, and this is, this is believed to a certain extent, you could give, a t- give or take a year here and there, that Daniel's about 15 years old when he goes into exile, that puts him at 81 years old here in Daniel chapter 9. So he's not a young man anymore. He's an older man. And it's interesting enough to look at those details. That'll play out in a second here. But when you think about this, Ahasuerus, as you see the name used here for Darius, for Ahasuerus, these names are often titles of leaders. Same ideas in uh, Genesis when you talk about Abimelech. If you're talking about Abimelech, you're most likely talking about the name or the title of the leader in the area of the Philistines, not necessarily the man's name itself, because you see it applied to several people. Ahasuerus was most likely a Persian royal title, and we suspect the same for Darius, as we noted back in Daniel chapter 6, where we, we talked about the two most likely possibilities of who Darius is. It's either Gubaru, the general who captured the city of Babylon, when, remember the handwriting in the wall in Daniel chapter 5, and all that happened? Um, Gabara was the general that led them in and won that victory, and so it's, it could likely be him. It could also likely be Cyrus, the Persian, or Cyrus the, the Great, if you will. And so we know that Ahasuerus mentioned here is most definitely not the Ahasuerus from Esther, to clear that up. You're like, oh, Ahasuerus, oh, look at that. No, different guy. Different guy, different time period. Most likely a title given a royal title given to that person. And so the reason why that fascinates me in the idea of how old Daniel is, is because if you're looking at from him going into exile and you understand the date where Darius had his first year of his reign, and you start looking at these things working out, you understand, okay, so Daniel 15, add the years. We know the year that Darius actually was ruling in his first year of his reign, puts Daniel about 81 years old. That means if you do the math, carry the one, that Daniel's been in exile about 66 years or so. 66 to 67 years. It's a long time to be in exile. It's a long time to be removed from your homeland. And what's fascinating about that is here's Daniel. However much time has elapsed from from chapter 8 where we saw him uh, receive the vision, you know, that that represented the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. We see Daniel in the aftermath of that, however much time has elapsed, in his Bible. 66 to 67 years of exile have taught Daniel what? To be in the word of God and to pray three times a day facing his homeland. Daniel learned what in exile? To read the word of God and pray. You can write it down. That's okay. Like, that's important that this is where Daniel is at this time. And what's he reading? Well, we know from going back and looking at the book of Jeremiah, he was reading from Jeremiah 25. Verses 11 through 12, which says this, This whole land will become a desolate ruin. These nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Verse 12 says, "Where When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. Gonzo, right? So if you're Daniel and you're in exile... And you've been there 66 to 67 years, and this says how many years till it happens? You're on the doorstep. You're on the doorstep. You're close. He's like, this is all coming down. We've been in exile how long now? What does Daniel do? In light of that realization of reading the prophet Jeremiah, reading the scriptures, what does he do? How does he respond? He recognizes the season he's in. 
and what's coming next by reading Jeremiah 25, and he takes action. Now, here we are in Daniel 9. We're going to read in this chapter over the next couple of weeks about the season that we're in and what's coming. Okay, so we are in a very similar situation. Whereas Daniel sits in Babylon and reads Jeremiah, we sit in Coeur d'Alene and we read Daniel, right? And we're going to read in the coming weeks about the things that are going to happen. And so here's the, here's the process. Church, we have to respond in the same way that Daniel responds here. What is our response? What action do we take when we go, whoa, hold up, look around you. Look at what's happening in our world today. Look what's going on around us. Look what the world is turning into. The coming of our Savior is soon. And so how do we react? What actions do we take? I think it's proper for us to observe how Daniel reacts to this realization so that we can have the right response to the season that we're in, and which is what we're going to see in the coming weeks. I believe that's precisely what the Lord's giving us opportunity to do as we're here in Daniel 9, is to respond correctly. So how does Daniel respond when realizing that the time was nearly there? Seventy years is almost up. Look at verse 3. So I turned my attention to the Lord, and he says, to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. If I'm wearing sackcloth and ashes back then, if Mike's walking around that way, what am I representing? What am I indicating? What am I giving you the impression of? Brokenness. I'm undone. I'm broken. I'm, I'm mourning something. I'm, I'm repenting of something. I am in a, a broken state. And it says that he did this through prayer and petition, seeking the face of God. He's fasting, which is a way of harnessing our focus and our, our, our energy on the spiritual. When you deprive yourself of food, you are putting your body into submission to the spirit. That's why fasting still has value. It's not like, if you don't fast, you're not saved. That's not it at all. But I think all saved people should fast. And I think that they should fast because it gives us a focus on the spiritual. You take your bodily desires and you put them under submission to the spiritual man. It's not a requirement, but there's benefit. There's benefit to that. And you know, if you're like, I can't do it. The blood sugar, it gets too low. I understand. There's ways to do it. There's ways for you to set time aside to focus on the Lord. But if you can fast, we need to be fasting as well. Because this is part of seeking the face of God. And, and I asked you guys to do this as we were, you know, praying over that term for the elders. By the way, the elders will be coming up, um, next week. We're going to pray over them. Um, because I haven't had any grievances that, you know, people are like, they can't do this. They're disqualified. So they're, they're qualified. We're going to pray over them and receive them as our elders in this church. Um, but in that process, I asked the church to take a day each week and fast, fast and pray, seek the face of God, much like what Daniel's doing here. And so Daniel makes the decision in his prayer to open the door, to open the door of repentance. And so should we. My desire, church, is as we study this text, that the Lord makes us more and more aware And not just here in this study time, but in our daily lives. Make us more aware we need to open this door. Have we pushed you out, Lord? Am I doing something that has, that, that, that is not your way, that's my own way, that's fleshly and not spiritual? Have I pushed you out of this area of my life? Open the doors, open up, let them in. Through that realization, may he awaken us to do just as James wrote in James 4 verse 8, where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
to have a singular focus, to have our eyes locked on Jesus and to get close to him and say, I want to be near you. You realize that when we draw near to him, he does draw near to us. And when you open the door, he will come in and take that place in our lives. We have to receive that and we have to open it through repentance. And so Daniel comes to the Lord in verse four and he says this. We'll read down through verse 10. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Oh Lord, the great an awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord, our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord, our God, by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants the prophets. I hope you notice this, but we're going to spend some time unpacking it a little bit. Daniel admits and owns the national failure of his people. Daniel admits and owns the national failure of his people, Israel. We have sinned. We have not listened. Over and again, he's not standing afar from them and pointing at them, accusing and saying, Lord, they've messed up. They've done this. They are not blah, blah, blah. Daniel stands with them and says, we, 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 we. He calls himself a part of the problem. He recognizes that he has fallen short. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But let me ask you this just as an opening question to this thought process. How much negative representation of Daniel do we have in Scripture? Not a bit. Not a bit. You're like, I want to say none. You're right. None is the right answer. We have no negative representation of Daniel in the scriptures. It's all good. Now, we don't have any, but we know that he's a sinner. Don't get me wrong. We know he's a sinner. And we know it because Daniel admits it openly. Especially farther along from our text, we'll understand Daniel to over and again say of himself to be a sinner. And we don't have a roster of his sins as we do with like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Samson. You know, like Samson's probably a four page document. Like we, we may not have the roster of sin on, on Daniel, but we know that he was a sinful man. He confesses his own sin. The point is this. From verses five through 18, in Daniel chapter 9, you won't find Daniel removing himself from the failure of his people. He won't do it. He's going to identify with them in all of it, in every aspect. When we confess sin, a lot of times we have a tendency to confess the sins of other people, right? We think of other people often, and we've all done this. I am with you in this more times than I can admit, more times I could count for you, more times I can admit. I can admit them all, but it's hard to count them all. Where I've listened to a sermon or a message that, boy, does he really need to hear that. Right? You know who this is for? Billy Bob. Yeah, this is him right here. I'm going to send it to him. But I'll do it veiled and be like, I think this would bless you. But I'm going to send it to him. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't send sermons to people. I appreciate when I get sermons sent to me. 
And I, don't, I try not to take that personally. You know, this one's about uh, being broken, Mike. You should really listen to it. You know, or being more spiritual or doing your hair better. But here, here's the thing. Like, when we hear the word of God, when we recognize what God is doing, we come to him in repentance. We don't separate ourselves from the situation and try and find the fault in others. We come and we need to have the, the habit and the habitual reminding in our lives to own it for ourselves, to own our own sin. A lot of times if we aren't confessing the sins of other people, we confess sin in a manner meant to excuse ourselves. Right? We try and make light of what we've done. Or you don't understand the situation, God. This is what I reacted to. Now, I know it was wrong, but I was really upset. And God's like, oh, that makes it better. That's less sin. We'll give that a downgraded mark for sin. That's not the really bad ones like all your friends commit. Right? (laughs) Guys, we think like this. Daniel wasn't like this. If anyone could have done it, he could have. From what we see Daniel in exile and in Babylon, Daniel did things the way they should be done. Daniel and his friends stood up to things that came against them. They stood up for the Lord. He was faithful. He trusted God when most people would have failed. He was only a youth at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. He led an exemplary life in the wicked city of Babylon for 66 years. That's a good track record. You can find someone that's faithful for six decades. You would hire them, right? Daniel could have pleaded his innocence, yet he took part of his people and confessed his own sin with theirs, saying, we, 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 and we. And we're going to see next week in verse 20 that Daniel was specific in his prayer, confessing both his the sins of the people and his own, saying, these are sins that we've committed, and this is my stuff. Because the opening of that door of repentance is going to open him up to this vision that he's going to have at the end of the chapter. And he's going to say it as the vision happens. He says, as I was confessing the sins of my people and my own sin, as I was there in repentance before God, he associates with them by standing with them in failure of achieving holiness and relying upon the grace of God. Don't let that slip by you. Daniel identifies with the people recognizing his failure of achieving holiness and relying on the grace of God. You recognize that that's all it takes to put put us with others, to put us with the rest of humanity. We have failed holiness and thereby have relied on something else and we have rejected the grace of God. And you're like, no, I'm in Christ now. Yes, now, but you had to be saved from your prior situation. We all did. We had to be saved from that prior situation by Jesus. And so here's where this gets really good. This is where this gets really intense and really good. Daniel was a sinful man. He associates with the sin of the people. Do you realize that he's a type here in Daniel chapter 9? He's representing someone who brings a fullness of this picture. Who is it? Who would bring the fullness? Who is it? It's Jesus. How? Jesus was sinless, yes? Jesus was sinless. Unlike Daniel, for whom we have no specifics for, yet we know was a sinner, Jesus was not a sinner. And however, Daniel is a picture of Christ here in this prayer as he stands with the people and associates with them in confession, repentance, and the desire for restoration. And in the fullness, Jesus came and was humbly born into a manger, a animal feeding trough, not into a kingdom, not into a perfect situation, but into desperation, into hunger and thirst. He lived and worked as a carpenter. He was baptized by a sinful man. He was rejected by his people. 
He was brutally betrayed, beaten, and murdered for being nothing less than exactly who he said he was, the king of the Jews. And that whole time, he called himself what? What was the almost exclusive title that Jesus chose for himself on this earth? Son of man. Do you see the picture now? How easy of it would it have been for Jesus to stand apart from us, to identify with his messiahship, his deity, his whatever, his kingship. And yet Jesus identified as what? Son of man. I am one of you. Sinless, but identified with us. Jesus didn't stand apart from us. And Daniel was a picture of what Jesus would do fully later on as he stood with the people and said, we, I see Jesus. I see Jesus standing with humanity saying, these are the ones that I care about. And I love them enough to not be separate from them in their humanity. Make no mistake. Jesus didn't reject any of his deity to become a human. He rejected the dignity he was deserving of. He rejected the dignity that he deserved to stand with human beings and say, I am one of them. I am the son of man. He stood with us. He bore our shame and sin on the cross. He chose not to stand apart from us, but to stand in the gap for us and to repair the damage sin had done to ruin the relationship we should have had with God. And he succeeded. And he succeeded. Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Jesus accomplished what we couldn't have. And while public shame here in Daniel chapter 9 is the experience of the Israelites, as he mentioned several times as punishment for their sin, in verse 9, Daniel says this, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord. And while public shame was what we deserved, Jesus stepped in and took that shame upon himself. He stepped in for us, even though it was what we, humanity, deserved to be shamed for, our sin and our failure and our lack of holiness. And Jesus stepped in and bore that himself. As Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We often talk about how we want to identify with Jesus. How we want to be Christ-like. I want to be Christ-like, you'll hear said often. I say it, because I really do. And I hope you mean it when you say it too. If I look at you, do you want to be a, you know, understanding the terminology of our world today, do you want to be a better version of you? No. I do not want to be Mike 2.0. I want to be Mike in Christ. That's who I want to be. We're not here to be a better version of me. There's not enough upgrades in the world, trust me. There's not enough software updates to provide me the kind of operational value that this world needs me to have. 
See, what this world needs is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as you think about this, as you think about that desire to be Christ-like, I want you to think about Philippians chapter 2. We've read these verses, but I want us to hear them with fresh ears. Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you want. The slide's not on the screen. It's not in the notes for today, but Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. Now with that church and your amen, so let it be affirming. Did you catch verse five? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So before we get all fired up about amening, and I tricked you because I led you into that, adopt the same attitude of what? Emptying yourself, seeing yourself as a servant, humbling yourself, verse 8, exactly, being obedient. To what extent does your obedience apply? Which could lead to a lot of things that are unpleasant. Could lead to a lot of things that are unpleasant. You recognize that this is what you're called to. And this is what I'm called to as a follower of Jesus. Does he call us to have a better understanding of prophecy? Let me ask you this. What's more important, being Christ-like or understanding end times? Don't like that? I can give you more. Because last time I checked, we're to be found in Christ. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't value end times prophecy. It means that that's not the main point. It's not the main point. It can strengthen us. It can encourage us. It proves God's glory and God's ability. But here's the hard part for me, and I don't know about for you. It's not struggling with understanding end times eschatology, anything of that type of study. My biggest problem is loving my neighbor. My biggest problem is having the same attitude that we see in Jesus. That's my problem. And it's at moments like that I realize that he's at the door. Because when I am not receiving him and walking in his will for my life and doing my own thing and gratifying my flesh, I am pushing him out of my house. And that's why I said, God forbid this church would ever be like the church in Laodicea. May we never become that way. A church that has no space for God, but has all the space in the world for their own desire. For their own fleshly cares. Don't think it can't happen here. There's a lot of churches right now that are watching their pastors fall that never thought it would happen there. Repentance is the door. 
Confession and repentance is the door that allows Christ to come in and fill that place and have fellowship with his people. Who was this Jesus? Who is the one that we cry out to and that we serve? Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquity. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. God punished Jesus for us. He punished him with the punishment that we deserved. And yet we push him out of our churches. And yet we don't want to stand with people in public repentance. Do you want a fresh vision from God? I hope you do. It's okay to nod. Do you want a fresh vision from God? Do you want to see what God has and what he's calling you to and know where your footsteps should be landing? Do you want to be led by the Spirit? Then we start with repentance. We start with brokenness. It's exactly what Daniel shows us here, and he shows us the heart of Christ while he does it. Jesus did all this for us. And regarding regarding the suffering that was to come, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And it says that he broke that bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way it says he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think that we would be foolish and we would be missing out on something to not hear in our heads as we take communion. And we're going to share communion this morning together. To not hear in our heads the echoes of Isaiah 53. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquity. Punishment for our peace was on him and we're healed by his wounds. We all had gone astray like sheep. We wandered off on our own way and God punished him for the iniquity that we had to pay. So worship team comes up. It's interesting that after that quotation from 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to talk about how we should examine ourselves. That we should examine ourselves before we take the bread, before we take the cup. This is important because part of communion 
is prior to taking it, coming to a place of confession. Coming to this place of confession and repentance for our sin so that the Lord can renew us. And it's coming to that door of our house and really checking to see, call the door of your heart, if you will, checking to see if that door is actually open. Have I shut the Lord out of something? Maybe, to expand on the metaphor, maybe the front door is open, but you got some, and you're not letting them in. In fact, you have a basement with a padlock on it. Sin. Maybe there's some sin in your life that you're not relinquishing, you're not giving up. This is the time before we take communion to confess and to take the lock off the door. It's time to open up. Because I believe that if we are going to be prepared and thrive and survive the season that we're entering as a church, we need to make sure that Jesus has full access to every part of our lives, every part of our church. Nothing is off limits to him. And I know we understand that concept, but this is so important for us to grasp on a daily level. Repentance is a daily thing. It's a daily choice to look to the Lord and to ask for him to restore and forgive. So let's take this time. As we take a moment to worship, and as they hand out the communion, I'm going to ask you guys to hold on to the communion, and we'll take that together. Um, but let's just take a moment to pray. And you can sing with the song, or you cannot. You can listen to the words, or you can just have a moment between you and the Lord. But I want us as a body and individually to ask for the Lord to cleanse us and to restore us and to own our stuff. Don't direct it to someone else. Don't blame anyone else. Admit that you failed and ask the Lord to restore you. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's ask him to do that. He's faithful and just to do it. Remember, the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the church community. We can approach it with sobriety, but this is joy as well. Reconciled in our hearts with God and the body, we're receiving the gift of the body and the blood of Jesus, and receiving that, we receive forgiveness, new life, and restoration. This is a fresh start. So let's worship for a minute, and then we'll take communion together.